Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. Chaos has been defined as complete disorder and confusion. However, God has a way of bringing peace and calm in the middle of chaos. Today, John continues his series on the book of Revelation with his sermon, God's Message in the Midst of Chaos. If you think about it, life is really kind of monotonous, and, and most of life, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, ordinary, mundane. We kind of do the same thing every day. I mean, we get up, we eat breakfast, have our quiet time, maybe have a quick exercise, clean up, go to work, work till lunch, eat lunch, go back to work, work till dinner, eat dinner, go home, do what you do, watch TV, spend time with the family, read, whatever, go to bed, get up the next day and do it all over again. That's pretty much how life works. But have you noticed that in the midst of the mundaneness of life, there are some wow moments that have been sprinkled in. Have you noticed, do you know what I mean by wow moments? We're talking about this group today, 83 people in Israel, and they are having a wow moment, not just every day, but multiple times a day. When we go to Israel, one of the wow moments for me is waking up on the Sea of Galilee, opening the curtains, going out on the balcony, and you're seeing the Sea of Galilee. You think, man, I can't believe that is the actual Sea of Galilee. And then to go to the Jordan River and be baptized where Jesus was, it is a true wow moment. I can remember one year we were there and our guide said, hey, we want to take you all to a new place to have lunch. It's a really good place right on the Sea of Galilee, or just off the Sea of Galilee, actually, and it serves fresh fish, and it serves pizza. I thought that was a strange combination, pizza and fish. And so we got in there, and they're taking our orders, and I'm thinking, I want some of this fish. I mean, we're in, on the Sea of Galilee, and it's called St. Peter's Fish, because Peter was the fisherman and so on. And so I said, I want St. Peter's Fish, and stood there talking to everybody at my table, and they finally brought it out. And it was not just a piece of fish. It was a fish with an eyeball in it, still in it. And I said, wow, I should have ordered the pizza because I've messed up ordering this. But the whole trip, the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, the Via Dolorosa where he carried his cross, to stand at Golgotha and think, wow, Jesus Christ died here to pay for my sins. And then the climax, the apex of the trip is to walk in that garden tomb where Jesus was buried, but thank God three days later he walked right out. And to think, wow, I can't believe that I'm really here. Now, if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, I want us to see one of the most amazing wow moments in this entire book. And we find it in chapter number 10. But before we get to the wow moment, I want you to go back to chapter number 8, and I want us to refresh our memories. Some are visiting today, and you weren't here with us last week. And if that's the case, we're glad you're here. And we're studying through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, and we've come to the point now where we're studying the period called the Great Tribulation. It is a future event. This hasn't happened yet. It will last for seven years. It will happen on the earth. And what it is, it's a time when God is going to judge and pour out actually His wrath 
on those who've never been saved and whose sins have never been forgiven. And we've been studying about this tribulation. In fact, we pick up in chapter 8 in verse 1, and it says, when Jesus opened the seventh seal, you remember Jesus took from the hand of God the Father a scroll, and that scroll had seven seals. And Jesus is opening those seals, and now he's opening the seventh seal, and it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And John said, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. In front of the throne of God, as we said last week, there stand seven angels, and during the tribulation, each angel will be given a trumpet, and each angel will blow that trumpet in succession, and those trumpets announce the next judgment that is coming on the earth. Then another angel, verse 3, uh, having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And we saw last week how these angels will blow their trumpets. And the sound of their trumpet announces the judgment that is to come. And the trumpet judgments are really what we could think of as the judgment of thirds. Because the first angel blows his trumpet and a third of the vegetation is destroyed. Second angel blows his trumpet, a third of the ocean turns to blood. Third angel blows his trumpet, third of the rivers and lakes becomes bitter. Fourth angel blows his trumpet and the sun, the moon, and the stars each lose a third of their light. And so it's the judgment of thirds, really. And then when we come to chapter 9, we read about the fifth trumpet. And last week we covered this, but I didn't spend much time on it. I was moving at a pretty quick pace. I want to go back and just highlight a couple of things that I didn't mention last week. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and John said, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And so this star is different from other stars that have fallen from the heavens at this point because this star is referred to as a hymn. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. This star was most likely a fallen angel. Remember when Satan rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven, a third of the angels fell with him. They had followed in Satan's rebellion against God. So this is either a fallen angel or maybe Satan himself. If it's not Satan, it is an angel who has great authority because he has the key to the bottomless pit. And we saw last week how when that bottomless pit, the abyss, was open, that locusts, these are demon spirits who are living in this bottomless pit. Even now, today, somewhere below the earth, there is a bottomless pit. There is an abyss where demon fallen angels, the worst of the worst, live. One day, that pit will be open, and those demons will begin to come out, and they'll come out in the form of locusts. And these locusts, these demon-inspired locusts, will, will have the power of a scorpion. And they will have stings or stingers with them, and they will go out and inflict pain on people for five months. That's what we read. They will not have the power to kill anybody, but they will have the power for five months to inflict great pain on everybody who doesn't have the mark of God on their forehead. Now, in verse number 13, we read about the sixth 
trumpet, and it says, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now let's stop right there. Who are these four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates? Well, these are fallen angels. Why do we believe that? Because nowhere in Scripture do we ever read that holy angels are bound. Holy angels are not bound. They are flying around heaven. They're above the throne of God. They're in front of the throne of God, around the throne of God. They're worshiping God. Holy angels are not bound. It is the fallen angels. Many of them have been bound. Some in the bottomless pit. And we read here, these four angels are bound at the Euphrates River. These are four of the vilest of the vile of the fallen angels, the most wicked of the wicked. One pastor says these are the filthy four, and they have been bound at the Euphrates River until the appointed time when this other angel would release them, and they would go, and they would begin to wreak havoc on the earth. In verse 15, so the four angels who had prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So these angels are so powerful that they will lead in the destruction of a third of the population of the earth at this particular time. Verse 16, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now I didn't comment much on this last week. But when John is having this vision and these four angels have been released at the Euphrates River, remember the location of the Euphrates River is significant throughout the scriptures. In Bible times, the Euphrates River is where Old Testament Babylon was. Modern day Iraq is there on the Euphrates River. And so we're not far from the nation of Israel. So Euphrates, we read about it at the beginning of the Bible, read about other key places. It is the largest river in Western Asia. And it is at this strategic place that these angels, these fallen angels have been released and they inspire a 200 million man army to come against the nation of Israel. Now, it's easy for us to read 200 million people in an army. We kind of read right past it. But folks, there's never been an army quite like this army. Now, it is true in 1961 that there were an estimated 200 million armed and organized militiamen in China. Think about that. That's back in the 60s. According to the Associated Press, in the 1960s in China, 200 million militiamen. But they weren't going into battle quite like this army. The number is staggering. Keep in mind that the population of the United States is only 327 million. So this army will be more than half the size of our entire country. Our army, which is the strongest, really the strongest military in the world. Did you know that today we have 1.3 million active troops? Approximately 865,000 reserve, reserve troops. So you add that up, you're still just a little bit over 2 million. This is 200 million. Now what's interesting is we're trying to figure out where, who is this army? Where are they coming from? Are these the militiamen from China? Maybe, maybe there are some coming from China. In verse 16, it says the number of the army. Now I'm reading out of the New King James and it says it's singular there, army. In the Greek, it says armies. If you have the New American Standard, it brings it out in the plural. And so this group, this 
gathering of 200 million troops is not just from one country. It is from different countries. It is from different regions surrounding the Euphrates River. And what the, these are the neighbors now of Israel. And presumably they have joined forces to come against Israel. And a third of the earth's population at this time will be killed. But nonetheless, it is a staggering, staggering thing. Now, at the beginning of the message, I said, we're fixing to see one of the wow moments in the Bible, and we are when we get to chapter 10. But I spent that time in chapters 8 and 9 to say that the setting of the wow moment is extremely important. Because if we don't understand the setting, we won't fully appreciate the wow moment. The setting is one of chaos. Think, use your brain, what is happening on the earth or what will be happening on the earth at this time. Vegetation struck. Waters in the ocean turn blood. Fresh waters become bitter. The sun, moon, stars lose a third of their brilliance. Locusts coming up from the bottomless pit causing great havoc for five months. All these things that are happening now, 200 million man army that is coming against the people of God. So it is in, a, in the midst of this chaos that we come to chapter 10 and we read what John saw in the midst of chaos and it brings great comfort to us. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. John said, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now the question is, who is this mighty angel? There are some who say this angel is Jesus, because the description we just read here, it sounds kind of like Jesus, and it sounds like the vision that John had of Jesus back in Revelation chapter 1. But I don't believe this mighty angel is Jesus for two reasons. First, I think it would be odd at this point during the tribulation for Jesus to return to the earth. In other words, it wouldn't make sense to me for Jesus to come back to the earth before the second coming. That would be strange. But you could argue that one way or the other. The real reason I don't believe it's Jesus, if you look back in verse 1, John said, I saw still another mighty angel. Underline that word another. In the Greek language, it means another of the same kind. In chapter 8, John had been telling us that he's seen these, these seven angels. And then he saw another angel. And now he's saying, then I saw another angel, just like these angels, except this angel was even mightier. So we don't know if this was Gabriel or Michael or some other. We don't know which angel, but it's a high-ranking angel who's come down from heaven to earth, right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. And it says, and he, was, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So it's interesting to me. In the midst of this time of unparalleled chaos, 
God gives John a vision of an angel descending from heaven, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and the question is, what is the significance of this vision? What is the message that heaven is communicating to John? And even more importantly for us, what is God's word to us today? And in a nutshell, this is the message. This is the sermon in a sentence. And this is what we all need to take with us today. God is saying to us that in the midst of unthinkable chaos, God is saying, remember, I am still very much in control. You see, when this tribulation is going on, it looks like the devil's in control. It looks like things have completely spun out of control. But this angel comes down to the sea and to the earth, stands on both as God's way of saying, the devil's not in control, the Antichrist is not in control, the demons are not in control, the locusts are not in control, nature is not in control. God is saying, even now I am in control. And the relevance to us is this. Hey, look, folks, in all of our lives, we have chaos We have crises. We have things we go through that we don't understand. It seems like things are falling apart. And God put this chapter in the Bible to remind us if he will be in control during the tribulation, rest assured, he is very much in control of your life right now. Now, that doesn't mean we understand everything. John had this vision. He he heard these seven thunders. But God said, or the angel said, nope, you're not allowed to write that down. You can't tell what the thunders are. When we get to heaven, we'll know. But it's been sealed for us right now. But there will come a day. And so many times in our lives, we go through things. Circumstances happen. Things turn against us. Maybe people turn against us. Maybe our health fails us. Maybe our job, we lose it. Or maybe our our finances disappear and things happen. Maybe maybe it's not those type things. Maybe it's a a broken heart from a a relationship that didn't work out. Or maybe it's a spirit of of anxiety or depression that is set in. Chaos comes in all shapes and sizes. But what God is saying is that He is very much in control of your life right now, regardless of what you're going through. You may not understand it. I may not understand it. God understands it, and He is very much in control. And so that's the first message. God is in control. You believe that? Say amen. Now, the second message, and we get this beginning in verse 8, is that in times of great chaos, not only is God in control. Now, that's good to know that God's in control. That's very good to know that. But God's Word can change our life. In other words, in the Bible, God didn't give this book to us just so a preacher would have something to preach from or so a teacher would have something to teach from. God gave this book so we would have in our hands a recording of His words to us And even though the Bible was written a long time ago, remember what it says about itself. This book says that it is living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the only book that you read that has life in it. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, are all through the pages of Scripture. So that you can read a passage of Scripture that was written, for example, by David or by Moses or by John or by somebody a long time ago. And yet God can take what they wrote in that context and apply it to you in your context, what you're going through in life. Now, this is interesting in verse number 8. It says, Then the voice which I heard, John said this, from heaven, spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went and to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat, 
and it will take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, this is a strange thing. John now sees in this angel's hand a scroll. This is the Word of God. That's what that scroll represents. And God said to John, go back to that angel and, and ask for the scroll. And he did. And he ate the scroll. And as it, we read here, when he first ate it, it tasted sweet. But when he kept chewing it, and then when it went down and he digested that word that he had read, and that, that word got down in his stomach, we would say, it became very bitter. And that says to us, the Word of God is both. It is sweet and it is bitter. You know, many times when we're reading our Bibles, we're looking for the sweet part of the Scripture. And there's a lot of sweetness in here. For example, you know, God promises to forgive our sins. He promises to meet our needs. He promises to never leave us. He promises to work all things together for good if we love Him. So there's a lot of sweetness in the Bible. And sometimes we can be so... Uh, blessed by the sweetness in God's Word that we almost use some of these verses almost like refrigerator magnets. And there's nothing wrong with putting a verse of Scripture on your refrigerator. It's a good thing to do. But we have to remember this. Not every verse in the Bible uh, would we want to probably have as a refrigerator magnet. Because there are some verses in here that are not sweet. They're bitter. They talk about the judgment of God. That's not sweet. The wrath of God. They talk about hell. This is not sweet. This is not something that we would want to put up on the refrigerator. And yet it's all part of the Word of God. And what we're learning here from John is that as we take God's Word and we begin to digest God's Word, we treasure that which is sweet. But we have to pay attention to that which is bitter because through the bitter words in Scripture, God is in the process of getting our attention. And God is saying, you need to think about what you're reading because if you'll think about it, it will change how you live your life. Now, I wrote down three little phrases as I thought about John eating this book because remember, after he ate it, it's sweet, then it's bitter. And again in verse 11, the angel said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So in other words, after you have read the Word of God, now he's saying, go out and serve me, God is saying. It says to those of us who are preachers or Sunday school teachers or connection group leaders, before we stand in front of a group of people to try to teach someone else what the Word of God says, before, for example, I do that on Sunday, I have to make sure on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday that I have been in the Word of God, not just preparing sermons, but saying, God, what do you have to say to me? God, speak to me. God, convict me of sin. God, reveal your will to my life. God, show me what you want me to do. Because if we have not received God's Word ourselves... We're hypocrites to try to pass it on to others. But once we have received the Word of God, once we have been changed by the Word of God, then we can go out and begin to share God's Word with others. And so these three phrases I wrote down last night, and I think these will be easy to remember. Here's what you have to do with the Word of God. You have to take it in through Bible reading, through listening to sermons, watching on TV or radio or Sunday school class. You take it in. You think it through. Now, there's where we're weak sometimes. And then you live it out. You take it in, you think it through, and you live it out. Most of us, we're in such a hurry, when we read our Bibles, we read our passage for the day or our chapter for the day, and we read it. 
Uh, so we, we took it in, but before we think it through, we close the Bible and go on about our day. You can't, you can't grow like that. The Bible, we're much wiser to read less and think more. So take it in, think it through, live it out. Say that with me. Take it in, think it through, live it out. Let's say that again. I think we can do better. Take it in, think it through, and live it out. We hope that today's sermon, God's message in the midst of chaos, has been a blessing to you. You can find this message, along with many others, on our website, www.peacebybelieving.org, under the broadcast tab. We invite you to like Peace by Believing Ministries on Facebook and follow at PBB underscore broadcast on Twitter. Also, be sure to tell your family and friends about our program. Thank you for spending some time with us today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.